Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. This is Pastor Will. You got to hear Pastor Will give a message uh, last Sunday. Will, you did a phenomenal job. I was really blown away by that. I'm still feeling very guilty about your kitchen. I'm just, if you were here, you know what that's about. If not, you can watch it online the first few minutes. Uh, Hey, Will, we had an incredible week around here um, at 4C this week. Thursday night, there was a worship night. Over 100 people gathered in this room to worship God and to focus our attention as well on our outreach ministries. And that's what you're going to talk to us about, right? So what do you have? Yeah, we had a great week here. On Wednesday night, we actually were here gathering. And what was pretty neat is we were able to, to write some cards. And I want to share just two of those that were left. This is from a student. It says this. And the, and the goal of the night was to, to write some cards to the pastors that we uh, serve that are all the way in India and now in Cuba. And this is what it says. It says, hey, Pastor James, I think it's great what you were doing for kids. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have a church to go to every week. Me and my family will be praying for you and your ministry. That's pretty cool. There's one more. That says, dear pastors, thank you and yours for having big hearts and big love. Thank you for your bravery and kindness. Continued prayers. These are just two of about 30 letters that were written. And then on Saturday, yesterday, we were able to serve at New Life Mission. It's uh, the partnership we have in Hamilton. We were were spreading mulch. We were packing lunches. We were prepping for them. And it was just a great day. And I'm excited that uh, I was able to wake up this morning just pumped to be here and share that God is doing extraordinary things in our outreach ministry. So we have our strategic partnership in Hamilton. That was yesterday. And did you have a couple photos? Yeah, I've got a couple photos that you can show. And what you're going to see is work happening. Right here is our campus in India. And some of the money that was recently raised for this ministry is going towards a roof. And this is a beautiful, beautiful campus in India. And you're going to see a couple photos shuffling by. You'll see James as he oversees and looks at the work happening right now. It's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable to see that Pastor James is continuing to spread the gospel, but also he's being a great steward of the resources that are coming in, and work is getting done. I love those kind of machines, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I need one of those at my house. Maybe, yeah, tear it down, build a whole new house. Anyway, and you see here, there's some, uh, some men who are, who are preparing vegetable gardens, and, and here's the cool thing, that the vegetable gardens are for the community. So they had some that were built that were kind of in disrepair. We built five brand new ones, a little bigger, a little better, and restored two more, and this will go for fresh produce in the community. They can come by, and they'll be served when they drop by to get fresh produce. Pastor Felix was really, really excited about this. So we have Hamilton, we have India, and we have our new work uh, in Cuba. And so this week, the money that you guys gave at Christmas to support the work in Cuba went there. Will, um, off the top of your head, how's some of that money going to be spent? And then tell everybody about the exciting news with the trip. Yeah, so there's 14 pastors in 14 churches in Cuba that are operating right now, that are in full operation where you have a family. And how it works there is it's kind of just like a house that has a roof, and that's where they gather. But 14 churches that are gathered there, and I was with our partner that we're uh, building this trip with, and he said when they first started it, when they first started the ministry, they wanted to take the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus to the darkest areas in Cuba where there was no Christianity. And that's what they've done. And we're actually taking a group from 4C in about the middle of September. We had a meeting on Tuesday night. And we've got some uh, people within Four Corners who are excited to get on the ground and to partner with these pastors. So if somebody wants to be involved in outreach at all, here, near, or far, that's right here with our strategic partners or around the world, uh, the first step to do is just check um, your Connect card, write a note, or email Pastor Will. It's just Will at Four Corners Church. Really proud of your leadership. Uh, every week we get to see you lead worship. You're becoming an incredible speaker to give the message. And then your leadership and outreach is just phenomenal. So thank you. You guys say thanks to Will for his leadership right here. Yeah. And then the other person that filled in while I took a couple weeks to focus on a few other things was Joseph. He's our newest pastor on staff here. And uh, just yesterday, there were about 25 guys gathered with Joseph in our new safety initiative that, again, at the Christmas offering, you guys helped pay for. 
And over the next few weeks, you're going to get some updates because there's going to be a handful of changes. And because we're church people, we don't like change. That's just the way it goes. Church doesn't like change, typically. And so what we're going to do is give you as much on-ramp as we can to share with you some of the changes. If you're checking in children into our kids' ministry, you'll see some changes there. And all of it is to make sure that we provide the most safe and secure environment for our kids so they can have a distraction-free engagement of the programming that's offered. They can learn about Jesus. They can discover truths from God's words. They can build friends. They can have adults who invest to them. And so over the next couple of weeks, you'll get some updates. You're going to see some changes. All of this is your money in action. When you give around here, your investment is not wasted. You're making a dramatic impact in the ministries that we're able to do. All right? Well, I'm really excited to bring the next installment of our Fixer Upper message series. We're looking at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an Old Testament hero who was one day a servant and a cupbearer to the king. But he heard about some news in his homeland, and it gripped his heart. It gripped his heart to hear what was happening back in his homeland, and he had a conversation with the king that he served as the cupbearer about going back to take care of his people, and specifically to rebuild the broken walls. Now, at this point in their history, the temple that had been destroyed when the land was ransacked had been rebuilt, but none of the city walls that provided fortification, none of the city walls that provided safety, that allowed people to sleep at night without wondering, keeping one eye open, wondering who was going to be next into their home, none of that had been done. And so the people of his homeland, while some areas were in repair, other areas were in disrepair. And the fact that the walls were in disrepair put everything else in jeopardy. And so we've been looking at the fact that while Nehemiah's story is very, very long ago in a different time and a different geography, there are principles about rebuilding walls that apply to the life that God wants to build in you. In fact, one of Jesus's favorite metaphors is the idea that our life is like a building and God is building it. And we've been talking specifically about, are there possibly parts of your life that are torn down, where the walls have been breached, where they've been knocked over, where the, where the gates have been burned? And if so, how might God want to speak to you, work in your life to rebuild those so that not just part of your life, but that all of your life could experience all that God wants for you? And Will and Joseph did a great job. Today, I'm going to take you to chapter 4, and we're going to read a few verses together. And typically, I don't like to read a whole long section to you, but I think it's really important because today, you're going to discover something that you intuitively know. In fact, this is a common reality. It's so common that sometimes we experience it, but don't even think about it. So what we're going to do is we're going to autopsy this very common reality that every person in this room has been through. But rather than just experiencing it, rather than calling it a common reality, we're going to look at it in depth and discover what God might want to teach us through it, how he might want to use it in our lives, this information about a very common experience. Because up to this point, Nehemiah has been doing some really cool stuff. And if you're just casually listening, you might get the impression that Nehemiah goes back with some of the king's men to rebuild the walls because he cares about it, and he just gets to work, and he stays at it. And over time, the work gets done. But that's not true at all. That's not what happens at all. He goes back to work on this very important thing. He's highly motivated. That's true. But everywhere he turns around, there's opposition. Everywhere he turns around. There's opposition. Now, opposition can come in a lot of forms. Sometimes opposition comes within yourself. We'll talk a little bit about that today. And sometimes opposition comes just because of the environment that you're in. And sometimes opposition comes in the form of other people opposing what you're doing. It's true. I remember one time, Jill and I were getting serious about our money, and we made a decision. We were motivated. We were just. We were eager to get after better money management. You know, give some, save some, spend some. And we had not made perfect choices in our marriage. And we made a decision that for the next several months, until we had a few goals, we were going to be disciplined. We started telling our money where to go. And I remember having that conversation on a weekend. And by the very next Friday, 
Two of our cars were broke. Water heater was broke. Air conditioner was making funny noises. And it's like, you've been here. It's like no sooner did we make the commitment to do the thing that it felt like opposition opened up. Uh, we've been in seasons of our marriage where we like, look, this dynamic here isn't very good and we're going to work on that. And no sooner than we commit to work on that thing, then something happens. You know, my kids who are normally angels suddenly get demon possessed. It's <laughs> put stress on the marriage, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know what it's like to decide you're going to do something good and it seems like the moment you decide to do it, all hell breaks loose. That's what Nehemiah went through. He's highly motivated. The Lord is behind it. God's hand is what told us. The good hand of God is upon him. I love that phrase. The good hand of God is upon him. And yet he has opposition. So we read this story. I want you to listen for the forms that the opposition takes. See, I have this. I have this underlying assumption this morning that if you and I will shine light in the dark places, all the little creatures will run away. It's similar to what Jesus said, that you'll know the truth and truth will set you free. I think that if we look at it today, at what opposition looks like, the form it comes in, that in some real manner, the opposition loses its fangs. It loses its punch. Oh, it's still, you're still going to have hard times, even after today. But I'm hoping that after today, you'll have a few more tools in your tool belt, that when it comes, and it will come, when it comes, you'll be more prepared to face it. All right? So, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. When Sanballat, now we got to stop there. This is a guy's name keeps coming up. Sanballat had remained in Israel when Nehemiah's group had been taken over to Babylon. Sanballat was there, and Sanballat's um, pedigree is, is that he is from the tribe of Judah. Now, you may not know a lot about Israel's history, so let me give you just a little bit. Judah is the premier tribe. There were 12 sons of a guy named Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Jacob becomes Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Each son begins a, basically a dynasty, an, uh, you know, a, a mini kingdom within the kingdom. Uh, one of those sons, his name is Judah, and Judah is the premier son. He's the birthright son. This is the, the, the premier tribe to be from. Out of all the tribes, you'd like to be from Judah. There was a prophecy about Judah that one day, one day from Judah's tribe, there would come a savior. And in fact, that happened in the New Testament. Jesus is born, and he's from the tribe of Judah. In fact, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah's the premier tribe, and, and, and being a, a part of the tribe of Judah left in Israel, Sanballat had gained a certain amount of notoriety. He had a certain status among the community. He's, he, he, he's a big wig, if you will. He, he, he wears the big hat. That's Sanballat. And then here comes Nehemiah back, and he's in exile. Here comes Nehemiah back, and he's got power. He's got authority. He has a compelling mission. People are rallying, and Sanballat, I'm assuming, it doesn't say, but it's kind of, kind of implied in the text that Sanballat's feeling a little threatened. It's interesting, the tribe of Judah. Historically, the tribe of Judah was, was the leading tribe in a lot of ways, but one of the ways they were specifically called by God to lead is they were called by God to lead in praise. So when the people of Israel would gather together, the first group to begin the praise, they did a church a little bit different than us, but the first group to begin the praise was supposed to be the tribe of Judah. In fact, to go into the temple gates, you had to walk through the land of Judah. And so when the psalmist writes, well, enter his courts with thanksgiving, or will enter his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Tangibly, while that means something real to us, to the people of Israel, literally they had to walk through the land of praise, the land of Judah, to get into the temple. And here's Sanballat who's called, interesting, this happens to church people. He's called to be a leader of praise. He's called to lead the people in the worship of God. But in our story, we find him in direct opposition to the work of God. That happens sometimes. 
Sometimes people who have a call on their life to do something over here aren't getting about their call on their life over here, and instead they find themselves in opposition to the work of God. So we're only two words in. I won't take that time for every other word, but here we go. We only got a few more minutes. All right. When Sanibal had heard that we were rebuilding the wall, look at what happened. He became angry, and he was greatly incensed, and he ridiculed these Jews. And in the presence of his associates, they always have a crowd, don't they? And the army of Samaria, the sworn enemy of Israel. So he's now conspiring with the enemy. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And then Tobiah, he, he joins in. The Ammonite was at his side and what are they building? If a, if a fox climbing were, were to climb on it, the, the, they, it would break down the walls of stone. So like they're so feeble, these stone walls, that even if a little fox jumped on them, they're going to crumble. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. This is Nehemiah. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. This is Nehemiah's prayer. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So Nehemiah hears them talking, and he goes to God privately in prayer. Not a bad move. He goes to God in prayer, and here's how he prays. God, take them out. Take out my... He goes all Old Testament on them. I mean, he just, take them out, God. Now, what's interesting is that this might sound like a vengeful prayer, but, but just two comments. It's slightly different age, different era. But the same God is involved. This is not Nehemiah asking for personal revenge. It's Nehemiah asking God to come and judge the actions of the people who are opposed to the work of God. God, turn their insults back on their own heads. Judge them fully. Wake them up to what they're doing. Let their insults come back on them. You're going to discover all throughout the Bible, even in the New Testament, that when people are opposed to the work of God... When people are opposed to the work of God in your life, it's okay to pray that God grips their heart however possible. I remember going through a particular rough season as a, as a teenager. I wasn't following in the ways I was taught. I knew better. I was, in a, I was kind of in the valley of decision. I was in that place of trying to make the faith my faith and at the same time wondering if I wanted the faith at all. If you have teenagers in your house, if they haven't gone through that, they will. That's normal. And my mom and dad were very patient, and they had wisdom beyond their years and, honestly, beyond their upbringing. And I think it was the power and the wisdom of God at work in some very imperfect parents who ended up doing some incredible stuff. And one day my mom was praying for me, and typically she would just pray, like, really nice prayers. I loved for mom to pray for me. She'd pray things like, you know, God, be with Ben, you know, bless his life. You have a call on him, and send him a woman, and, you know, it's going to... So she typically, I mean, all these wonderful things, I'm like, yes, God, just whatever you, whatever she says. One day she's praying for me. She said, God, wake Ben up. Let him see how serious his behavior is. Make him fully aware. God, whatever you have to do to grab his attention, grab his attention. And then she said, and this is like, if you knew my mom, this doesn't matter. She's like, God, don't let him sleep at night until he makes things right with you. I'm like, good God, quit praying. <laughs> this is not the kind of prayers I, I want to hear from my mom. You know, grip his heart, Lord. Rock his world until he realizes you're the only thing worth living for. Woo. That doesn't sound very kind and nice, but she's in the spirit of a Nehemiah here. She's basically saying, God, bring the judgment, bring the consequences of his behavior so that it rocks his world. And makes him aware that anything he does to oppose you is not going to be successful in his life. And then verse uh, number six. So we rebuilt the walls till all of it reached half its height. And the people worked, I like this, with all their hearts. But when, here it is, Sanballat, don't name your kid Sanballat. It's not going to be a good <laughs> legacy, all right? Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard the repairs to the uh, uh, to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were, it's interesting, they're angry. It's amazing. You have people in your life, if you were to step up and go all the way towards what God has for you, 
they're going to get angry. A few, a few months ago, I was talking to a guy, he's about 25, 26 years old, goes to this church, and he doesn't mind if I share this story, and he was talking about how the fact that at his age, he realized he had a little bit more growing up to do, and specifically as it relates to his wife and the priority he puts on his home, because up to this point, he had been focusing a lot of his attention on his friends from college still. And he said, the oddest thing happened. These are like my best friends in the world. But I started telling them I need to be at home more. I need to focus more on my marriage. Rather than being affirming of that decision, they started ridiculing him, calling him, you know, henpecked and under the thumb of an oppressive regime. And he called his wife. And he said, I, I, I never expected. He said, but I know I'm doing the right thing. If you step up to do the right thing, it's likely that there'll be some people in your life who might not be all that affirming, right? They all had plotted to get together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. In verse 9, but we prayed to our God. There it is again. We prayed to our God. And we posted a guard day and night to meet the storm. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot build the wall. When you get started doing the thing God's called you to do, it, there's, there's this point somewhere in the middle where you begin to wonder if you can do it. There's this point in the middle when you press into your marriage and you've made the decision, you've taken a few steps, you're not there. There's this point in the middle that happens where you start going, golly, I'm not sure if it's worth it. Or this is, this is really hard. I remember... I love my kids, and I, I remember when, um, when they were somewhere between about two and four, and we're, we're moving out of the total care and nurture of all moments of their life, and they're starting to exhibit just a little bit of independence, some of those first few steps, and I remember thinking, like, getting them to bed, like, this is just hard. And, like, that seems really simple at this point to say it, but I remember going through that scene where it was like night after night after night of just how difficult it was. And I wanted to be a good dad, but I'd come out of that bedroom sometime, finally getting a kid down, and I would be like level nine frustrated. And just tired, angry, upset. They ruined mommy and daddy time. I'm not a happy man. I'm not a happy man. And I remember thinking, this is just hard. And all it was was getting a kid to bed. You decide, listen, you decide to do something meaningful and follow God all the way through your life. It'll be the right decision. It won't be the wrong decision. There's a future vision of what it can be. Rebuilt walls in your life, metaphorically. There it is. But somewhere between here and there, there's a point where you, everybody begins to wonder. And, they, and you'll find yourself feeling very much like they felt there. The strength of the laborers is giving out. And then while that happened, of course, number 11, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So there are three things. There's their own internal motivation. There's a handful of people jeering at them. And then there are people coming going, you're never going to make it. Like literally, like one day you're going to come and they're going to take you out. I mean, this is the difficulty of pressing forward on the things that God wants to do in your life. This is exactly what Nehemiah was going through. Verse 13. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall. At the exposed places, posting them by families with their sword, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And I like this line. Look at this. This is why you got to rebuild walls. This is why you got to follow God. This is why you can't give up, even when it's hard, even when people accuse, even when your internal motivation is failing. And fight for your families. Your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. We're not building walls, friends. We're not building walls, Nehemiah says. We're not building walls. That's not what we're doing. We're fighting for our families. We're not building walls. And God's not calling you to follow him. He's not pressing in on you. He's not challenging you just for you. Moms and dads. This is for your family. The reason why you have to follow God with your life and press through and get past the sand ballots and the Tobias in your life is 
It's for your family. The reason why that 25, 26-year-old guy in our church has to press through and turn his back on friends who aren't acting very much like true friends is it's for his family. It's not for him. Whenever God's doing something powerful in your life, it's not just for you. Your life has an impact on others. Now, maybe, maybe you're sitting in a room and you don't have a family yet. You're like, well, how does this apply to me? Well, two possible scenarios. One, maybe you will have a family one day, and maybe you won't. Let's do it the first one. Maybe you will. The stones you lay now with the Lord, the stones he directs you to lay, and the, the boundary walls you put in place today, they will serve you then. It's very difficult when you're in the middle of a family thing later to build the walls while you deal with the family thing. It's much easier and much more prudent to build the walls that need to be built now, to get ready for the family you want then, now. Get your money in order now. Don't spend every penny now. Start saving now. Get a, get a handle on your mind and your imagination and, and the filth of this world. Get a handle on it now so that when you come into that place perhaps that God has for you with the family, the walls are in place. It's not too soon to grow up with God. It's not. There are a lot of adults in this room in their 40s and 50s, and if they were honest with you, and often they won't be, but if they were, they would tell you, man, I wish I would have dealt with my persistent problems back then, but I didn't, and the delay is now costing me more now. And maybe, maybe you won't have a family. Maybe, maybe that's not God's plan for you. The Bible says singleness and, and, and kind of you know, being celibate and, and, and being alone and focused on a solitary endeavor with your life. So that's a call from God for some people. And if that's your thing, it's never too late to grow up with God for you. And then the spiritual family that you're going to impact. You know, one of the reasons why we're dealing so aggressively in this season of our church life with the safety issue. It's not just about us, and it's not just in reaction to the news and a few horror stories around the globe. That's not just what's going on. What's going on is, is we have a heightened sense that God has put us strategically in North Cincinnati to make this a place where families thrive. Both biological families, blended families, and spiritual families. And we don't want anything to distract us from our ability to drive anchors deep into the souls of the family, families that God is gathering here in this place. Man, we're not just, we're not just building walls in a kid's space. We're fighting for families, for our sons and our daughters, biologically and blended and spiritual. And there's always opposition always. You can't do anything good in life that you don't have your own internal struggles, the struggles of a handful of people and sometimes direct opposition. That's true for you. It's true for churches. It was certainly true for Nehemiah. When our, when our, verse 15, when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each one to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried material did their work with one hand and held a weapon with another. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked, but the men who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. You ever felt that way? This is too big? It's all spread out? And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued. That right there might be the word for some people today. Just continue. You'd be surprised with just simple persistence and tenacity will accomplish in your life. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears. For the first light of dawn till the stars came out 
At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even as he went for water. There was no break. Let me give you a few statements before we do a little autopsy on opposition. These first couple statements are just kind of pastoral in nature. You have an active enemy. You do. It's not something we talk a lot about. My favorite author, C.S. Lewis, he says it this way. He says, you can talk about the devil and our enemy in such a way that he becomes too much of the focus, and that's a problem. Or you can never talk about him and forget he's there, and that's a problem. There's a problem of seeing a demon behind every bush, and there's a problem of not acknowledging at all that there's a dark force at work in this world that opposes God, and his plan for you is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his plan for you, for your family, and everything God wants to do in your life. So if that is the backdrop, let me give you the first one. Our enemy does not mind you being in church. Doesn't mind that at all. So long as you keep detached and don't move forward. There's this thing that happens in our spiritual growth. That sometimes just the idea of I just showed up and just by being present, um, I get my check mark. Being present, I get the credit. Being present is the work that God called me to do, but that's not what God's called you to do. You're in a battle. You're in a battle for yourself, the life God has for you, for the impact your life can have on others. If you're a family member, for your literal family. And the enemy doesn't mind if you're here. He minds if you're engaged. He minds if you listen with an open heart. Years ago, I made a decision after having served on staff for a while and had to try to find a church for the first time in my life to attend. Since I was 17, I only attended churches where I was employed. And then I moved to Cincinnati, and for the first time in my life, I had to find a church to attend. And I made a decision about three weeks in that every time I heard somebody speak, I would pray a simple prayer. God, make me receptive today to whatever it is you want to speak to me. Make me open to whatever it is you want to say to me. Don't waste this hour. Don't waste it. And I'm going to tell you something. I've heard some horrible speakers. I've heard some people that on one level felt like, it felt to me like they were a waste of time. I've heard people who clearly weren't as prepared as they should be. And I've heard people who we're obviously working out some self-therapy on stage. But when I prayed that prayer, I've almost never, not one time, walked away from a message that I didn't hear something. It's about engagement. The enemy doesn't care if you're here. He doesn't care if you have Christian friends. He doesn't care if you have Bibles laying around your house. He doesn't care if you have Christian music on the radio. He doesn't care. That's not the battle. The battle is a battle for your heart. And doing spiritual activity sometimes can fool you into thinking that you're engaged. Nehemiah needed people who were building the wall and holding a sword. You're fighting a battle. And the stakes are high. And when you begin to move forward, your next blank, if you move forward, you will encounter spiritual opposition. You will. I don't understand how it all works. It doesn't seem to me to be always be a linear process. It's not scientifically explained. I don't have a process for everything. But I've learned that when you begin to move forward, let, let a man in this room step up and say, I'm going to lead myself as a spiritual, godly man. And I'm, out of the overflow of that, I'm going to attempt to lead my family. And truth in advertising here, there's going to be some pushback. Let a couple look at each other and say, we've had an okay marriage, but now we're going to have a godly marriage. Let them do that. That'll be a good thing. It'll be one of the best days of your life, but there will be pushback. Let a person say, we haven't been really honoring God with our finances, but we're going to honor God now. We're going to not be a slave to the lender, as Proverbs says. We're going to get our debt under control. Go ahead. There'll be some pushback. I don't understand how it works. It just always comes. Let me tell you about Nehemiah in your next point. For Nehemiah and for us, life is a cycle of advances and setbacks. So I'm calling this three steps forward today. You know what that is, three steps forward, two steps back. 
Sounds pessimistic, but that's a little bit of reality. And maybe it's three steps forward, one step back. Maybe it's five steps forward, two steps. I don't know the exact math. But as long as you're in this life, you're going to have trouble. You know who said that? Jesus. That's the part of Jesus nobody likes. As long as you're in this life, you're going to have some trouble. And then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, let me give you just a little bit of a setback from Nehemiah's life. Take a look at the screen, just some of the numbers up here. Right, look. So on one column, you have some advances. And then in the other column, you have some setbacks. So in chapter 3, it's all good news. By the time you get to chapter 4, there's Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and the others, and they're gathering. And there's this bit of a setback. And then he presses through in verse 4 through 6, and then there's a setback. And then verse 9, he presses forward a little bit again, and then there's a setback. Next screen. And then in verse 13, some advance, and then setback. In chapter 5, advance. But by the time you get to chapter 6, the persistence is paying off. There's an attempted setback, but it's foiled. And when you get to chapter 6 that we'll get to next week, he makes his final big push, and there's one more attempted opposition. But at that point, the walls are done. Yeah, there might be pushback, but I'm telling you, tenacity, grit. The old-timers used to call it faithfulness. Your faith is supposed to give way to faithfulness. And it's hard. We're raised in a culture that says if it's really hard, avoid it. Have fun, enjoy life, and we tell ourselves that enjoyment is a function of ease. But that's simply not true. Think back on your life, short life, long life, however it is, wherever you are. Think back. Some of the things, I bet, I predict, some of the things that you've enjoyed the most weren't necessarily the easiest things you did. When you look back over those seasons of your life where there was deep inner joy, some of the reasons for that was as you pressed in, you persisted, you fought hard, and then you got there. In your spiritual life, it's the same way. And you should know that the opposition is not going away. That's your next point. It's not. But we are not defeated we are advancing, and there'll be pushbacks, but then we're advancing. And there'll be pushbacks, but then we're advancing. And at some point, and here's, a, here's a verse I hold on to. The Lord says in, in his word in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul, that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. In fact, let me tell you what God's going to do with the opposition. God will use the opposition to drive you toward greater dependence on him and greater determination to do what he's called you to do if you'll let him. Yeah, the enemy means the opposition to kill, steal, destroy. But God will use it towards greater dependence on him and greater determination. And some of the people we admire the most in our culture, in history. We're not people that had an easy life, but they overcame serious obstacles, internal struggles, environmental struggles, struggles of other people, struggles of war, they, personal handicap. They overcame significant struggle, and because they did, it's honorable, it's admirable. They're <coughs> heroes to us. So what kinds of opposition exists out there? Let me give you a couple. Number one. The anger of other people against you. <clears throat> now, the bigger push you make, the more it's going to happen. If you're in a family with some dysfunction, it was described to me this way by my counselor. If you're in a family with dysfunction, imagine a little baby laying in a crib, looking up at one of those mobiles that spins. You know, you wind it up, place the whole thing spins together. It's uniform. It spins the same way every time. If you're a family in some dysfunction and you decide one day to get healthy and follow God and be, be, be more healthy in your dynamics, it's basically like you decided you're going to reach up and you're going to grab your piece of the mobile, which represents your life, and you're not going to move that way anymore. The problem is when you do that, everything else gets disrupted. And guess what those people do to you? Their first response is often anger at you, frustration at you. And people who should be encouraging sometimes 
and saying, go after the health. We didn't. You should. We want the best for you. Sometimes when you decide to go after health, the people around you who are still used to the way the mobile turns and interacts, they don't like that sort of thing. You've got to be able to press through for that. They're coming back to build the walls that ultimately protect the temple and the life. And Sanballat and Tobiah are angry. It's fascinating what happens. If you're a boss and your responsibility in your company is to uh, you know, maximize and manage the area over which you have responsibility and you've identified a problem and if you go to your team and you say, hey, the way we've been doing this needs adjusted, there's likely going to be a few people on your team who won't go, this is the greatest thing in the world. I'm really happy that you're upsetting my routine. I'm thrilled that I have to change the patterns of engagement. I'm thrilled that I have to report in a different... That's not likely to happen. They're likely to push back and their response is often anger. And you know why people have angered responses? It's because it works. Most of us are wired that if somebody in the room expresses anger, we back down. That's how manipulators work. That's how controlling people work. And it, it takes a certain amount of tenacity and a spine and an absence of fear in your life to stand up and go, that's not working here. I love it. In chapter 6, we're going to read it. I'll talk about it more later. But in chapter 6, verse 3, you may just want to write this down. 6, 3. 6, colon, 3. One of my favorite verses in all of Nehemiah. Sanballat, again, is in Nehemiah's ear. And finally, Nehemiah steps away. So now Sanballat sends messengers, and he's still in his ear. And Nehemiah's up there building the wall, and he says this phrase. He says, I'm doing an important work. I cannot come down. Come down. Nehemiah, we need to talk. We got to talk. There's, there's problems here. We got to talk. We got to talk. Come on down. We got to talk. Nehemiah says, I'm doing an important work. I cannot come down. And he decides to stand up against. And when he does, he begins to push through. Number two, here's the way opposition can look. Mockery and sarcasm. Mockery and sarcasm. If even a little fox were to jump on these rocks, they'll fall down. Hey, they're, they're trying, but they're not, it's not working well. Now listen, I've spent most of my adult life around Christians. And I could pepper each one of these with illustrations. The problem is it hits too close to home. We've had a great run for 13 years as a church. But there have been a few seasons when we went to make changes. And sometimes people just weren't very nice. Like good, godly people probably going to go to heaven. You know one of the things I'm most excited about heaven? One of the things I'm most excited about heaven is, is that when we get to heaven, here's what the Bible tells us is going to happen to you that you're going to get a glorified body and every imperfection in your life is going to be made perfect. And what that means is when we get to heaven, I'm going to like you so much better. <laughs> I am. I'm just being honest. Like, you're going to be awesome. Because most of you are, for the most part, most of the time right now. Now, of course, that's me too, right? Because God's going to make me perfect. And in heaven, we're going to get along perfectly. But it ain't going to happen here and now. So when God's put a call on your life to press through, you just have to press through no matter what people say. When we first started this church, I uh, thought it'd be a really good idea to call the other pastors in the area and kind of introduce myself. That was the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> like, it seemed reasonable. I made 24 calls. Got through to about two or three first round, but by the time it was all said and done, I had talked with about 12. Here's how one guy said, when I finally got through him, he said, I was wondering what you had up your sleeves. Like, I never met you. God, you're harsh. Like, how does that happen in you? But I knew God had put a call on our lives, and we had to press through. You can't rely on what other people say about you. You don't get your value and worth simply from the other people around you. They can be a part of that. We get it ultimately from God. And when you're pressing through on the thing that God has for you to do, uh, it's possible that sometimes the people around you who are used to you behaving one way aren't going to know what to do with the new way. And sometimes they don't know how to respond to all that. And one of the tools some people use is mockery and threats. Or number three, then, threats and intimidation. Threats and intimidation. It happens. Sometimes when you're pressing through, like Nehemiah was... Sometimes those threats come from the outside, but sometimes they come from the inside, this voice inside of us, where we just feel like we're not up to the task. 
And I won't let you off the hook on that one. If you're pressing into what God has for you, you are not up to the task. You cannot do what God has called you to do on your own. You cannot do it without his power. You cannot do it without his presence or his strength. You can't. You are not up to being the godly man God's called you to be. You are not up to being the godly woman God called you to be. You are not up to being the good husband. You're not up to being the good wife, to being the good child, to being the good mother, parent, friend, executive. You're not. And so when the enemy comes and says, you can't do this, just go ahead and agree with him. You can't. And when Paul came face to face with his limitations, here's how he jumped over it. He said, I can do all things. And a lot of times you like to want to stop there, but that's not what he, I can do all things through what? Christ who strengthens me. Now you, you cannot do all things. You certainly cannot accomplish all that God has called you to. But when Christ strengthens you, you'd be surprised what you can leap over and how far you can go. Discouragement and exhaustion. The people are tired and the walls are only halfway built. That happens to every mom of a toddler in the room. Like, you know, I just want to be a good mom. And this is so difficult. And sometimes it's just rest when Elijah the prophet was exhausted and he had his greatest victory. And right after his greatest victory, he slumped into his deepest depression. And he finds himself in a cave hiding out. And God had just shown up in a powerful way. And the response to that is he's hiding out in a cave because he's afraid. It's crazy how that happens. And the Lord told him to sleep and rest. Sleep and rest. And so Nehemiah made a way for people to be able to sleep and rest. They slept with their swords and their spears. And they all gathered together just inside a little area just inside of Jerusalem. And he let people sleep even as they would get up in the morning and work. The next opposition that you'll likely face is negativism. The truth is that some of our friends, some of the people you have in your life, are never going to be the kind of people that call out the God stuff in you. In fact, they're very likely to push in the other direction. And these people are not friends. They might be friendly. And we have to learn the distinction between friendly and comfortable and friends. Because there's a big difference. And Nehemiah had to put a boundary between him and the people that were constantly in his ear. And the last one is fear. Just fear. I think this is a big one. I think sometimes we think about the future and the gap between here and there. And man, that seems like a chasm sometimes. And fear will keep you from going. And from Nehemiah's story, we learn not only some of the oppositions, but we learn how he overcame them. And this is where I want to spend our next couple minutes. Over and over again, Will said it last week, over 40% of the, uh, the, the language in this book is, is a prayer or it's talking about the Lord. So number one, he lifted up his voice in prayer. Lifting his voice in prayer. A very famous Christian author by the name of John Bunyan, he lived in the 1600s. He wrote a best-selling book of, of all time for over 200 years called Pilgrim's Progress. Here's what he said. He said, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. For the follower of Jesus to go into battle without prayer is like going into battle without your armor on. And what Nehemiah did to overcome the opposition that was natural to life is he went to the Lord over and over and over and over again. And some of you are trying to fight battles that are serious and the stakes are high, and yet you don't take it to the Lord in prayer. And I get it. Prayer's a discipline. Prayer feels like slowing down. Prayer feels like I haven't fully engaged because I'm over here praying and I just want to remind you, it's like Abraham Lincoln talked about when it came to chopping down trees. Remember, he is known for that sort of thing. And he, somebody asked him, if you had to chop down 100 trees, what would be the first thing you would do? He said, the first thing I would do is I would sharpen the axe. Now think about that for a second. Sharpening the axe is not cutting down trees. But if you take time to sharpen the axe, you can fell more trees more quickly. When you pray and invite God in, 
it changes the dynamic of how you engage opposition and it opens you up to the presence and the reality of God. <coughs> Number two, putting heart into the work. Putting heart into the work. When Will and Joseph gave their messages, one of the points both of them made is, is that God has to give us a concern. God has to give us a concern. Will said it this way. He said, we get a concern and then we're called to inspect it. Not avoid it, but inspect it. Inspect it. Got to have a heart for it because the stakes are high. I, I've been praying for you all week that God would give you a vision of just what was at stake in you fully pursuing all that God has for you in every category of your life so that your whole heart would be engaged. You know, when my kids were little, we were those parents that would tell them, say you're sorry to your brother, say you're sorry to your sister, because we hope that one day in that practice and in that routine, it might become normal for them to take responsibility and apologize. We're not sure that it happened, but that's what we were attempting, all right? And the, the, the reason we did that was is we just wanted our kids to have a discipline of doing and saying the right things. But there were times they did it, and their, their apologies went like this, I'm sorry. And we all knew they weren't. Right? But we're tired of fighting. We went ahead and let them go on. Then there were times, there was like the rare, they, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is my kid. It's not Jill's. This is my kid. <laughs> They're getting it just right. The heart was in it. The heart was in it. The heart being in the work. So let me ask you, what is the work God's called you to do? And is your heart in it? Number three, standing guard. Listen, don't miss the big metaphor of this book. There are walls in disrepair probably in your life. There probably are. Where you've let down the guard and now the enemy can come in. So where do they need to be built back up? Man, I, listen, this is the easy one, but it's just so frequent. It, you know, the, the, the sexualization of our culture hasn't brought freedom. It's brought chains. And men, men, listen to me. You got to get a handle on your imagination and your mind because the walls are down. And the enemy can just come in with that. And, and for, for 10, the first 10 years of the church, I'd stop right there, but I can't stop there anymore. Ladies, listen to me. You're not empowered when you act like men act when men act stupid with the sexualization of our culture. You're not empowered, you're headed for the same chains. You got to get a handle on that because the walls are down. You gotta stand guard. Put up the guardrails and stay in line because the thing that you really want out of life is at stake. If God's not center and if you don't have appropriate guardrails up, well, you can't have secret internet accounts from your spouse. You just can't do it. It's stupid. You can't have private access points communicating socially to people, talking about things you have no business talking about with somebody you're not married to. The last five divorces that I'm aware of in this church, every one of them in common, private access passwords, points. Every one of them. That's letting down your guard. The enemy comes in. But the biggest one, don't miss this, the biggest one, focus on the Lord. Focus on the Lord. Life will pull, life will tug, your own heart will give out, people will be in your ear, but the one thing that overcomes them all, focus on the Lord. Over and over again, Nehemiah reminded the people, reminded himself that the Lord was in it. He's talking to God, he's talking to God. And let me, let me tell you why it's so important that you come to, in my opinion, when you come to church and you worship, because it's in worship that we focus our eyes on how big God is and our problems take their right shape. It sounds cliche, but it's in worship that we remind our problems how big our God is. When we sing songs like, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God, it has, if we'll engage, it has the ability to, to grow our hearts and open our eyes and we get to see the world around us a little differently. When we declare the reckless love of our heavenly father, that while his character is resolute and strong and purposeful, his love looks crazy and ridiculous in its lavishness towards us. 
And it reminds us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of our heavenly Father demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. And focus on the Lord. And if you're in the place where the opposition today seems really big to you, the single best advice I could give you is focus on God for a while. Get back to your quiet time with him or start it if you never have. Spend some time in the word. Get around some godly people and talk about the goodness of God. Rehearse some of the stuff he's done in the past in your life where he showed up faithful and remind yourself of the goodness of God. Now I'm just telling you, the old song says it, but it's true. If you turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth grow strangely dim. It's a secret that the old timers learned, and it's a present message for us today. I want you to grab out your connect cards, and let's take a few steps together. I've been talking about the fact that God is big, and in light of our problems, he's bigger than anything else, but I want to ask you today, do you have a relationship with him? Because if not, you can change it in a heartbeat, literally. The Bible says you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in prayer in just a moment, but first I'd like you to take a pen that we provided and take that connect card that Adriana told you about in the video and just check next step A. Says today I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. We're going to pray and I'm going to give you a chance to say to God, God, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. And you're bigger than my sin. I can't save myself. And so I'm going to trust the work of your son Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection to save me. And I put the card in the offering bucket and we'll communicate with you this week about it. Or next step B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. If you have questions, want to get baptized, this is the step that initiates all those conversations and if you've been around here for any length of time, you know what a celebration it is when people declare publicly, I'm not ashamed to stand with Jesus. And the next step C is an opportunity for you just to be honest. It says, I've had some serious opposition in my life lately. Pray with me for resolve and for strength from the Lord. Now, if you want to tell us about it, you can write it on your comment section of your card. You can just check the box, and this week our staff will pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to stand with you in the gap as you build the broken walls of your life, even as you're facing opposition. And then uh, next step D says, I tend to focus on the other things around me instead of the, the Lord. So if that's true, I'm going to give you one, one action item. I'll read the book of Acts this week. If there was ever a book in the Bible, just a few chapters long, where people focused on the Lord and saw God show up, it's the book of Acts. I think if you read the book of Acts, it might inspire you and encourage you, and it won't take forever. 15, 20 minutes a day, and you can finish it in a week, all right? And the next step, E, this was mentioned in the video. It says, hey, send me the link for the volunteer work for the weekend of May 5, which is a Saturday, and then Sunday night, May 6, and I'll help jump in. And if you have special skills at all with building and stuff, we're just going to try to make a major, massive movement. If you want to write that down, that'd be awesome, but this is kind of an all-call for us. If you're a member of our church, this is a great opportunity for you to really jump in, all right? So why don't you put that a card aside? If you call this church home, this is your opportunity to make a physical, financial investment into the life of this church. I've got to share with you guys who call this church home um, just some really, really exciting news. All right? We don't make a lot about money around here, but every once in a while, God just does something profound, and I think it's important for you to hear it. And um, if you're our guest, I want you to know you're sitting around incredibly faithful and generous people. It's not that they're wealthy. But they honor God with their money, unlike any church I've ever seen. So with Christmas and Easter, our church has raised an extra $135,000 for work in our building and outside of our walls. And that's spectacular. But since January, February, March, and April, we've seen an increase in giving. Most of that's through the members who formally signed on to call this church their church. And our membership experience, Grow One, it's on your Connect card, it's been a powerful tool. And so in April, we had a record month. And I'm so honored and thrilled to serve as your pastor, people who are faithful and generous. And you don't give simply out of your abundance, you give out of your discipline and you give unto the Lord. 
because of that, literally, lives are being changed. When you give to this church, literally your giving is touching around the world. You saw the roof being worked on in the picture. Literally, we're going to Cuba. Literally, we're 10 miles down the road and right here in this building. Your money is not wasted. Thank you for being faithful. Let's pray about our next steps. Father, we're so grateful for what you're doing. God, many of us in this room are in the, right now in the middle of opposition. And I pray, Lord, I pray, God, that we would focus our attention on you. That we, of course, see what's in front of us, but we'd see the God who's bigger than all of it. Would you help us, like Nehemiah, to be tenacious, to not give up, to keep pressing forward? I want to pray for those, God, who are right now declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. I trust you and your shed blood and your empty tomb as my pathway to a relationship with God. Father, I lift up all the men and women in this room who are taking steps. I pray, God, that you would help them to walk boldly towards you. They wouldn't turn to the right. They wouldn't turn to the left. They'd turn towards you and face you fully and start walking. I pray for bold action. And Father, thank you for the gifts that are about to be given and those that were given online. Thank you, Lord, for a generous and more importantly, a faithful, obedient church. We're grateful for what you're doing, Father. We praise you. We thank you and we pray it all in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.